Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Today, our guest is returning guest, Kaylin Johnson. This is part two of an interview that took place earlier, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and check that one out. But for a brief recap, Kaylin is a healthcare provider, patient advocate, and entrepreneur who shows high-achieving, neurodivergent, and hypermobile individuals how to unmask their health and feel their best through concierge whole person care. Kaylin, hello, and welcome back. Hi, thank you so much for having me back again. It's great to be speaking with you again, and um, we'll kind of jump in from where we left off last time. So a great deal of your practice is focusing on reconciling these different identities and different aspects of the experience that go along with hypermobility. And to that end, you're also a member of the LGBTQIA plus community and work with many members of that community in your current practice. Can you tell us a bit about your perspective as a person with a hypermobility condition who is also a member of the LGBTQIA plus community and how you help and work with others who are members of both of these communities? Yeah, I would love to speak on this issue more for sure. And where I see this really play out for my patients is really just in the idea of dealing with additional marginalizations where you may feel like you are living in an entirely different world than everyone around you because you are. And that really is what I see reflected in the hypermobile patient. You know, you could be in the same room and your experience of safety, of wellness, of comfort is different based off of your hypermobility, based off of your queer identity, based off of maybe your skin color, based off of whatever that might be. So what I really find and what really both, um, you know, helps me relate to patients, but also was one of the hardest things that I had to carry was when I got my own hypermobile diagnosis, when I got my autistic diagnosis, my ADHD, there was a part of me that had to mourn and grieve and allow myself to be fearful and scared for like, oh my gosh, like all of a sudden, even though I had them, I had these labels that carry these huge stigmas and marginalizations throughout society and throughout healthcare. And I really use this as an opportunity to teach my patients that, you know, as a marginalized person, there are biases in healthcare too. And my goal is to prepare them to know when they are receiving care that feels right and when they aren't. And, you know, as well as the validation to keep going and that they deserve to have providers who allow them to be themselves who believe their experience and to really, truly see and honor their humanity. That is so wonderful and so well said and such a necessary perspective. In my years of speaking to hypermobile people and reading and spending time in this space, I definitely have noticed that the LGBTQIA plus community seems to be statistically overrepresented. Like It seems to be a very big part of the hypermobile community. And when you have these kind of additional 
means of stigmatizing. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to put it, but these additional sort of labels mm-hmm. that can be stigmatizing tools or, or effect, effectively act in a stigmatized way from providers, these things really add up in, in patients. And it's really hard to address this, this kind of complexity that manifests in, in a single human being. That's, that's a person there seeking care. And I think you just summed that up so eloquently and have, you know, clearly processed your own experiences um, in such a helpful way to, and, and I just think it's wonderful that you're helping patients to be able to discover what feels good and what works and be able to advocate and gain back a sense of empowerment and, and control in this system, which often leads people to feel very isolated and, and a loss of control. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I also want to make sure kind of within that, that I also mention how important it is. And that's kind of the patient perspective of it. But when I'm speaking with providers or uh, any sort of medical professional students, whether that's medical students, pharmacy students, PT students, um, anything, I like to remind them in the case that is hypermobility that, you know, one of the core factors that sets off a lot of the health problems for um, those patients is going to be related to dysfunction of their autonomic nervous system. And uh, mm-hmm. in addition to any sort of the, um, whether subluxations, dislocations, or joint kind of pain issues. If you are living life as a person who is marginalized or who frequently is stigmatized day in, day out, from the moment you wake up, the moment you walk out your door, the moment you walk into a grocery store, school, your work, you are having to be hypervigilant to your safety. The body in the end is pretty simple, right? Is going to generally be in a state of parasympathetic, rest and digest, or a state of sympathetic um, or dorsal vagal. So in the fight, flight, freeze response. If you are a person who is marginalized, if you are queer, if you are a person of color, um, whatnot, you have an extra heavy weight on your nervous system in just the moment you wake up. So if we even think about like bandwidth or spoon theory, or like you said, feeling like there's maybe even like a disproportionate amount of queer people, or I know I've heard comments on like women or women sometimes having worse symptoms. I mean, I think there's a lot of factors at play, but one that cannot be ignored is the fact that if you are marginalized in any way, you have an increased weight on your nervous system every moment of every day. That is such a critically important point. And thank you for expressing it and putting it, you know, in such eloquent terms. It's so it it almost seems like self-evident in the way you've said it so so wonderfully. (laughs) And yet it's such a, a concept that is really not acknowledged and is really kind of missing from the world that we operate in. And it's just kind of unlocking a lot of connections in my mind thinking about the implications of all of this, but it's tremendously impactful. And and even just being able to kind of recognize that reality is an important step to be being able to 
live in a more harmonious way with this world that puts so many taxing pressures on the nervous system, even under, you know, normal conditions, but, uh, or typical conditions, but is particularly problematic and can be particularly hard when it comes Mm -hmm. to people that have been marginalized. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and it just, what you're saying about the nervous system kind of reminds me of when I've looked back in evolutionary biology and kind of learned a bit about that. There's this notion of kind of the first feeling that like when <laughs> organisms evolved with nervous systems that are much more quote unquote simple um, or, you know, just not as complex as our, our human prefrontal cortex, our whole structure we have, that uh-huh. this kind of first feeling is like fear, aversion, basically that feeling of like, no, I don't like this is bad. And kind of thinking about how that combines with our thoughts to create additional sensations and this concept of how that. I was discussing recently with someone else that that someone was saying that anger is not a feeling, that anger is really based in fear. I guess (laughs) that kind of got my brain thinking because I'm not sure how useful it is to be telling people that feelings are not feelings. You know, it's like, (laughs) you know, and I've I've had Mm -hmm. that before. That's not a feeling. It's like, okay, well, I'm trying to describe my internal state using the imprecise tool of language. So, you know, that's, (laughs) putting the semantics aside there is a grain of truth in that concept to me i think that like a concept like anger is sort of that that first feeling that aversion that fear but then with the thoughts on top of it like enough kind of thinking to say this situation is is wrong or this is this should not be happening in a, a civilized or polite society that we in theory um, you know strive to live yeah. in and so kind of I'm not, I'm not even sure where I'm going with this totally but thinking about that concept of how our mind processes these symbols or signals from our nervous system mm-hmm. and intellectualizes them to some degree and how that can result in in kind of a, I don't know if a disconnect, but thinking of like kind of the snail that recoils when connecting with salt or some kind of poisonous substance, that that's kind of the same evolutionary basis of like what we have when we have a, a reaction to something. But we live in this society that's kind of full of these negative stimuli that our brain is then really <laughs> scrambling to make sense of, as, as I'm doing right now. <laughs> so... Yeah, no, I, I think I'm I, I think I'm tracking with you. <laughs> and where this, though, is actually a really a key core concept I've realized for um, my hypermobile patients is my take on that really is there's almost two forms of those emotional responses. There is and again, like some of it's because of our linguistics are um, maybe too simple for this, which makes it mm-hmm. kind of confusing, I think, for people. But I think there is anger that is sympathetically activated. So comes in that similar place, that rage or irritation, mm-hmm. anxiety, panic comes from. That's the that's really the amygdala that's doing mm-hmm. that work. That's the, I always refer to it with my patients as like, it's like a feral toddler. Like it is mm-hmm. like throwing a tantrum. It is reacting to the world around it. Now, like you said, the prefrontal cortex though, that 
is going to have adequate blood flow when we are in parasympathetic, rest, digest, ventral vagal, social engagement. If you think of that, a lot of times we give words to the parasympathetic state as like calm or like meditative, um, sometimes like joy, compassion. I find that that's very misleading in that social engagement, parasympathetic, ventral vagal is really about being grounded, really about being connected to your actual experience in that moment, which would be the experience of the prefrontal cortex. That's where more of your blood flow is, where, like you said, putting the thoughts, the reasoning, how you are actually being the observer of your kind of sympathetic reactive experience. And in that state, that's when you'll actually then have like the emotions. Um, So you can be, there's a difference in being basically sympathetically activated with anger versus anger that is in the parasympathetic state based off of the thoughts, feelings, and experience you are observing. And I'll give you kind of an example in what I see a lot with my patients is that as I get them to care for their autonomic nervous system, especially for, um, you know, efferent vagal nerve dysfunction that is common in hypermobile patients, that they are spending more time in parasympathetic. And a lot of them find, though, that they are very um, emotional and like, what's wrong? Like, I don't feel good, like, like, as in like, joyful, like, I feel maybe more at like, peace, I think, but like, I'm crying a lot, I'm grieving. And um, I had some a patient recently who was trying to get to work. And they were like, I was doing some deep breathing, I was doing caring for my nervous system. And it didn't work. And I was still crying, and I had to cancel work. And I was like, No, the deal is it did work. It's that what you were feeling in your calm state was a state of grief Mm -hmm. and anger and sadness for the reality Mm -hmm. of what was happening in your life as is. Mm -hmm. What you wanted me to do in that moment was to help make that stop. And the reality is the only way that I could have done that is by sympathetically activating you Mm -hmm. and helping you dissociate it from in that moment, which you know, we all have a choice. And that's what I always say, I want my patients to have autonomy and the choice to make of what they are going to do with the situation and the reality of it. But I think there is that biological emotional response. And then there is that intellectual emotional response. And they are both valid, and both part of the experience of you. Absolutely. And that's such a brilliant way of saying that and of getting at this complex phenomenon that I think our language is imprecise tool to begin to address the sort of infinite complexity of this experience. But but you did it with, with what you just what you described <laughs> in that example is so useful. And it's also a good kind of testament and a reminder to put these things in, in the larger context. And sometimes thinking like, oh, this didn't work or something like that. But thinking like, well, there is actually kind of this deep wisdom in the body and in the nervous system. And sometimes our body forces us to do the thing that we wouldn't like to do, but the thing that we really need in that moment. Exactly. Um, yeah, well, that's that's a, a wonderful sort of 
encapsulation of such a, a, a complex topic. And another big area of focus for you is public health and global health. What do you see as the biggest problems and obstacles out there for public and global health, particularly when it comes to the hypermobile community? Yeah, um, I love this question. Love this topic so much. Um, I know that you and I have kind of talked about this before, but my passion is upstream thinking. It comes naturally to my brain. And this is a topic that I have spent a lot of time thinking about and always am wanting to figure out the most efficient and sustainable way to help all of my patients, which uh, over the years, but now is my are my hypermobile patients. And I've keep coming down to this same answer, which really the secret to health and wellness is being able to identify your needs and then the ability to have those needs met, which sounds incredibly simple, (laughs) but it's not at all for any of us, but especially if you are neurodivergent or biodivergent of any sort. And a lot of what I do then with patients is there's so many tips out there of, you know, for the hypermobile patient, well, maybe sit like this, or maybe stand like this, or maybe move your arm like this, or take this supplement or do any of these things. But none of it gets down to that base reset that is so needed of being able to tell if something is helpful for you, or if something is harmful for you. And when we are undiagnosed hypermobile, undiagnosed neurodivergent of any sort, ADHD, autism, whatever it might be, from the time we are tiny, we are given the message that our inner context, our inner reality is wrong. Like, no, you're not in pain. You're 10 years old. Why would your wrist hurt when you're doing a push-up in gym? You must be faking it. You must be trying to get out of it. It's wrong. That leads to a lot of confusion for us. And we end up then we need context to make decisions. So we trust that of everyone around us, including a lot of my patients are have probably read every self-help book under the <laughs> on planet Earth and uh, looking for the answer to help them feel better. And the core piece is they are not speaking the language of their own body and mind. They are not hearing and interpreting the messages from their body that are saying, this feels good or this doesn't feel good. Like, stop doing that. Like, well, no, the book says that it's helpful if I get into a cold shower for five minutes and thinking then if it doesn't feel good, that there's something wrong with them. So this all kind of comes back to this core reset of helping my patients really reconnect with their own inner reality and alignment and no longer basing their wellness, their health on an idea of who they should be Mm -hmm. or who society says that they are, but rather the reality of who they are in that moment, how they actually feel in that moment, and then really giving them back that choice point of how do they want to respond then in that moment. Wow, that is, it's such a phenomenal perspective. It's so, it's getting back to these kind of 
first most basic principles. And it's making me think like, yeah, we never really get an education in how to determine our most basic wants and needs. It almost seems like there's Mm -hmm. sort of an implication or an assumption maybe that your most basic wants and needs are either irrelevant, something to be ignored, as we've kind of touched on, or that, of course, you know how to seek them out, because they're they're (laughs) so obvious, you know, if you're thirsty, drink water, you know, obviously, but it, it is something that takes some training and some acknowledgement. And I, I just think it's so wonderful that you help work with people to to reestablish that that first connection of what do you need and what's good for you versus what do you want? What do other people want for you? What do you think other people want? Kind of these yep. other layers. And it's it's so superficially simple, but it's actually sort of deeply complex and kind of missing from our our modern world. And I I just think it's amazing that your experiences and your careful contemplation of these concepts has led you to be able to help establish the most vital connection that we have, our connection with ourselves, (laughs) which is the basis for every other connection and every other decision and every other thing that kind of flows out of our lives or you know, is, is more maybe readily observable. Exactly. And it's so like one of my, you know, favorite examples of this specifically um, that I share with my patients is I remember when I was probably about 14, I read an article about a woman who had lived to be 105 and they had asked her how, how did she make it to be 105 at this point? Um, And she was like, I drink a Dr. Pepper every day. And as a 14 year old autistic kid who loved patterns, I was like, wait, that doesn't fit the pattern that I've been told that Mm -hmm. where my mom is telling me I shouldn't have a Dr. Pepper every day. So that stuck with me. And I had been trying to figure out then that pattern for the rest of my life, continuing to hear stories about a patient of mine had an aunt who swore by um, a shot of bourbon and a Hershey's chocolate bar every day. And she lived into her hundreds. And in doing this work, you know, it's so clicked with me, the through line, they didn't do what we would have said was good for them, what we told them was good for them. They didn't care. They listened to their body, they gave it what it needed, and did so without guilt and shame. And if that shows you, do I think then that the Dr. Pepper actually (laughs) was what did that? No, like, Mm -hmm. it probably did add stress to the body. Mm -hmm. But think about how much stress than individuals are carrying when they are carrying the guilt and the shame or the constant chase of somebody else told me this was good for me. It must be good for me versus screw it. (laughs) I'm just going to give myself what feels good in the moment and roll with that. That right there, like in the hypermobile, when I'm talking about this with my hypermobile patients, I think about, okay, you're going to go to a party and maybe you're going to go to that party and you're going to we're going to plan that you're maybe going to try to rest. Maybe you're going to drink some water. You're going to try and find some quiet space to, um, you know, get into like a zero gravity position, pay attention if your joints are hurting. But if you're going to do that, that whole time, fearing that everyone is going to be mad at you, Mm -hmm. 
that fact that you, you know, rested your neck maybe from pinching off your vagus nerve and maybe you increased your fluid volume and pressure. Here's the deal. You still activated your sympathetic nervous system in the end because of that huge emotional side, which was still going to set off this cascade of issues. And so this ability to identify the needs, to meet the needs is just so at the core of all of this work and really being able then to help my patients figure out where their nervous systems are triggered for both physical and emotional reasons, and then helping them call attention to those, be aware of those and come up with ways to cope with as many as we can. Wow. Yeah, that's that's incredibly insightful. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I also have always been intrigued by those stories from people who have made it past a century and kind of what's their secret. And I've noticed that through line <laughs> as well. I, I once was talking with a woman uh, who was, I think, in her 80s and, and just kind of thinking like, wow, like how, how does she lo- still seem so engaged in life and kind of, uh, you know, kind of asked her, well, what's your secret? And I think she said something like a pot of coffee a day and an occasional shot of Jack Daniels. And I was like, wow, this isn't <laughs> like, this doesn't check out with the normal kind of public health advice. And it's interesting because it is the line, like life's a great balancing act and like being able to put these things in balance. And, you know, as great as it, you know, it's great to know the effects of sugar and that these things are, you know, not quote unquote good for you or can cause inflammation or have these things, but also realizing that denying yourself or living with this kind of stigma of how other people think of you, that, that these things are having an effect too. So being able to kind of put that knowledge and information in context with what your own sort of internal compass is, is guiding you towards. That's exactly, it is that actual balance and homeostasis, which is why the, I don't know if it's the um, upside or the downside of having a hypermobile, you know, nervous system, that's a bit of a canary in the coal mine, that this always trying to kind of seek and help our bodies reach homeostasis and balance really, I think, leads us into this very kind of, uh, it's it's just a completely different way of living life and Mm -hmm. and caring for our bodies and minds. Absolutely. Um, And that's a great segue into um, my next question. So in working with chronic conditions, you address both the conventional and functional medicine approaches. Can you tell us in a nutshell what that approach involves and why there is typically such a a large barrier between these two approaches to health? Yeah, very much so. So I started, my background is in conventional medicine um, as a pharmacist, but I quickly uh, really found a lot of passion for uh, chronic disease state management, Um, specifically started in an endocrinology clinic um, in my residency. And I really saw right away how the medical system had really, really failed those with chronic disease. And a patient who I had who was trying to help her with adherence really, really was struggling, not because of adherence, anything that was really related to the medication, but was related to other things in her life and barriers and obstacles to her being able to meet her needs. And right at that moment was when I realized, okay, like there's so much more upstream and 
I can't ignore that I don't see that there are solutions and I can't throw my hands up and say, oh, well, this patient's not listening to me. They're just not being adherent. No, they've got all these other areas of their life that they need help with. And functional medicine really takes a closer look at the impact of stress, movement, nutrition, sleep, genetic differences, and micronutrients. It's looking closer at what makes each of our health needs different. And that's something that I love to about working with people on their wellness and working in healthcare is that there are both these commonalities and these patterns, but each person is unique. Their subjective experience is unique. Their objective genetics are unique. And that creates a more complicated patient. But I like being kind of aware of that and putting all of those pieces together. And what I really love about functional medicine is I think it really does um, attempts to address the barrier of our siloed healthcare system where, you know, you go to one specialist um, and sometimes even a functional medicine one, it's like plugging one hole and water shooting out of all the others. Mm-hmm. And this unto itself has hurt those who are hypermobile or have other chronic issues so, so much. When we're diagnosed, we think we think it'll make things easier and it may make the immediate issue make sense. But our healthcare system really rarely teaches patients how to live well, how to have a quality of life with the diagnosis. You know, yeah. there's validation in the diagnosis but patients come to me and are surprised and let down that they find that the help doesn't go beyond a name and a bandage in traditional healthcare. And functional medicine, along with conventional medicine, then really I aim to see patients as whole pictures, how each part of their life and health impact each other, because they do. And you have to consider that if you want to provide help that is helpful for your patient period, as a provider, you just have to. Absolutely. And I think that's the brilliance and the necessity of your practice. I think you're really bridging that gap, which often seems more like a a giant gulf between sort of the conventional (laughs) medicine approach and this kind of burgeoning functional medicine, which, which are so, so siloed from each other. And I think it's incredible that you're trying to reconcile that conventional medicine approach world that you came from and have a background in education in with the kind of basic fundamentals, which we all kind of know are the precepts upon which you know, health and a, a life well lived are built, but are very difficult to address in, in practice. So I, I think that's, that's just wonderful. Yeah, I think it is, it's difficult to address in practice as practices stand right now. But it's not difficult. I always want to point that out. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes too, yeah, there's this sense of like, well, this can't be done. No, it 100% can be done. It's just, and it's honestly not even that big of a tweak. I think, like you said, that, you know, schism between the two, I think what would fill it, I think about this a lot, is I think that really there needs to be like a hypermobile specialist on the team, someone who can anchor and help the other specialists have a lens on how the hypermobility impacts everything else. And somebody who, for anyone with chronic disease and chronic symptoms, that there is a place for them to have 
consistent help reminding them that it's valid to be concerned by their frequently changing symptoms, that it's okay to want another set of eyes on your body's health needs. Like we were never meant to be our own doctor, yet when you have chronic issues, chronic symptoms, the assumption from our healthcare system and society is that we will be the master of our care. And the reality is we aren't and we can't. Mm -hmm. Like that is a completely unrealistic expectation. We don't ask therapists to therapize themselves Mm -hmm. and doctors can't write their own prescriptions. Why would a patient with chronic issues be able to confidently assess and manage their ever-changing symptoms on the daily? And especially with a like hypermobility that affects every system in your body. Like it is Mm -hmm. insanely complex and that's what a big part of what I try to do then is to kind of be that core anchor, that owner of that lens to help put it all together. And I always say too, that like, I do this every day and I'm too close to the picture to do it for myself. I have somebody wonderful in my life who helps me sit down and really flush out my symptoms on the daily and how they're changing and how we kind of can tweak how I'm caring for my body, my mind, maybe medication. What do we kind of look at next? Like it's, it's a puzzle and that shouldn't just be put on the patient just because it's overwhelming for a provider. Absolutely. Um, So well said. All of that is just music to my ears. And it's such a good reminder that, yeah, we all really kind of need that either hypermobility coach or overseer, (laughs) provider, someone to kind of help us navigate these issues. Because even someone as kind of well educated and informed as you like, in in being able to recognize like, as individuals, we're maybe not the most objective, you know, (laughs) viewpoint of our own situation, and just having someone to kind of help us manage and and guide and be a partner with us in this process is just so incredibly important. And I think it's incredible that you're taking these lessons from your lived experience, your education from really all of your life and using them to be that support for other people. And I'm so glad that you have that support in your own life because it's this kind of complex interaction, but um, that's, that's a marvelous example. Yeah, I think it especially like plays into this factor where I think there would be so much power in empowering providers more so starting in medical school, especially, but even later, and even really educating patients on this, that it's okay to say, I don't know. (laughs) And that you can still offer support to a patient, even if you're not sure what's going on, like, that's okay. And it is, and I'll tell you, it is hard when there is a patient sitting across from you who wants answers and is hurting and just wants help, like to sit there and to have to be like, I don't know, like, it's not an easy thing to do. But oh my gosh, the amount that you can help somebody just by saying, I don't know, but let's, let's try this, or let me see how I can best support you, or find resources to support you. People just want to have help Mm -hmm. to have support. And they don't, they don't want an incorrect diagnosis <laughs> that you just pulled out then that, that close enough. It all comes down to, I think, in my practice, like when I see myself really making a huge difference in patients, it's one of those things that like I get, I can feel so frustrated with the system 
that just being able to believe my patient's subjective experience, to hold space for it, to validate it, and to provide help and support in, again, whatever way they find helpful, like, that's it. That's the tea. Like, that's that's the stuff. And it's, I think sometimes in medicine, we've gotten lost in the details. And I think we need to kind of back it up and um, look at, are we really helping patients, which is what our end goal always was, was patient-centered care, not provider-centered emotional comfort. (laughs) Not that they can't be emotionally comfortable, but Mm -hmm. like, it's back to patient-centered care. Absolutely. And I think that that little phrase, I don't know, is so important and so sort of missing and and hard for a lot. Of, and it is legitimately hard to say and to be in that position, as you say. And yet that to me, when providers have said that to me, that's a, a mark. That's almost that's like a green flag, so to speak, mm-hmm. that that's someone that I, I respect very much when people are willing to acknowledge their own limitations. And, you know, the more we can kind of encourage that, the better. And I, I think that's, that's kind of a wonderful place to wrap up this episode on um, definitely more to to get to for the next time we chat, but just kind of yeah. sitting with the importance of being able to embrace the I don't know and the, mm-hmm. the being able to offer that support and guidance in the face of uncertainty. And, and that's a lesson that applies very broadly, even outside of the hypermobility context. Yeah, exactly. So much of this, again, like I said, ends up really a way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that benefits not only the hypermobile individual and is really like a necessity for our wellness, but um, are really skills that I think can benefit us all. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us again today. I look forward to picking this up again in the future. We'll include links to Kaylin's website in the episode notes if you want to reach out and connect. And yeah, just thank you so much for your time today and for this incredible work that you're doing for the community. It's, It's really important and tremendously exciting. Thank you so much. I always enjoy getting to, you know, have these conversations with you. And like I always say, it's, you know, uh, social rest for me as well. And yeah, definitely contact me. And if you're looking for this kind of support, I'd love to chat with you and meet you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. See you next time. Bye.